0: welcome back to the tapes archive podcast today we are releasing another black sabbath documentary this time it's on their iconic album master of reality the documentary was made to be watched but we know some of you prefer the audio version shout out to all the truckers so i will leave a link in the description to the video version and the audio version is coming up next One last thing before we get to the interview, the Tapes Archive podcast is a proud member of Osiris Media, a global community connecting passionate fans with podcasts and experiences about artists and topics you love. Thanks for tuning in and now it's time to open the vault. After the band's massive success with 1970s Paranoid, which had reached number one in the UK, Black Sabbath had been put on a rigorous touring schedule to support the album playing a stint in Australia, two tours of the US, as well as all of Europe, which left the group exhausted. Yet their label Vertigo, wanting a quick follow-up to take advantage of the sales and buzz from Paranoid, put the tired, overworked band back in the studio in the first part of 1971 to record what would be arguably their heaviest album ever, Master of Reality. July 17, 1970 and Black Sabbath had just released their single, Paranoid, the title track from their upcoming album. This is only the band's second single. The first was Evil Woman off their self-titled debut album. Evil woman, you with me? Not a song the band particularly felt strong about. For one, it wasn't even their own. Evil Woman was instead a top 20 song by the obscure American group Crow. And Sabbath felt like they had been forced to release their throwaway cover by management. And all for naught, since it resulted in zero success on the charts. Ironically, Paranoid was considered a throwaway song as well. Bassist Geezer Butler explained, The song Paranoid was written as an afterthought. We basically needed a three minute filler for the album, and Tony came up with the riff. I quickly did the lyrics, and Ozzy was reading them as he was singing. It took 20 to 25 minutes from top to bottom. But this time, unlike Evil Woman, Paranoid would become a smash hit and generate good and bad things for the band. Behind the scenes, the band had been lured into believing that Don Arden's former right-hand man, Patrick Meehan, and his henchman, Wilf Pine, would elevate them to worldwide success while their local promoter and current manager, Jim Simpson, did not have what it took. Of course, Paranoid had already made Black Sabbath a worldwide sensation. Still, the band struggled with self-doubt and the perception that a hungry London-based management would take them into the big leagues was too good a temptation to pass up. Black Sabbath would get what they wanted, but it would come at a cost that they would pay for the next decade and beyond. On September 4th, 1970, just 14 days before the Paranoid album would be released, Jim Simpson was served papers stating his services were no longer needed, and the band was now managed by Mian and his company, Worldwide Artist. Although this came as a huge blow to the kind-hearted Simpson, he would later take it in stride after winning this case five and a half years later stating, I was with Sabbath for their best two records. After the September 18th UK release of Paranoid and only six months after their debut album released in February 1970, Meehan wasted no time pushing them into the limelight by getting them a spot on the popular mainstream British music TV show, Top of the Pops. On Thursday, September 24, 1970, Black Sabbath, Panama, and Paranoid into millions of homes across the UK. The appearance not only helped the song move up the UK charts to the number four position, but it also helped the band take over the number one spot on the UK album chart, dethroning Simon and Garfunkel's popular album, Bridge Over Troubled Water. In October of 1970, Mark Plummer wrote in Melody Maker about Sabbath becoming a victim of fan worship. Sudden mainstream popularity proved a double-edged sword. On the one hand, it was gratifying to reap the fruits of all their hard work, but on the other hand, pop fans were turning up at their shows, which made it seem like that Sabbath was selling out. Although the group initially welcomed the attention, it ultimately made them uncomfortable. Guitarist Tony Iommi recalled, Top of the Pops attracted a lot of younger screaming kids. We weren't that type of band. It felt wrong to us. Lead singer Ozzy Osbourne said, The kids who came out were okay, but it wasn't what we were trying to achieve. Bubblegum bands come and go. We were attracting people who were just fans for the minute, mostly women, and then of course, they eventually disappeared. We didn't want to attract that type of fan base. We wanted fans who were genuine. Even one of their early supporters came out against the Sab 4 once they were famous. <laughs> John Peel was a DJ on BBC radio station Radio 1, where he hosted a show called Top Gear. In one of his regular segments on that show, known as the Peel Sessions, he would have an artist come into the BBC studio and record up to four songs live. This was a powerful way to promote a band and often the first major national coverage many performers achieved. As early as 1969, and long before today's social media celebrities, John Peel was known as an influencer. Influencer. Peel first tried to sign Sabbath to a small record label after seeing them play on September 4th, 1969, but the band turned him down. Then, on November 11th, Peel gave Sabbath their first opportunity to be on the radio. They recorded four songs Black Sabbath, Walpurgis, War Pigs with Alternate Lyrics, Fairies Wear Boots, and Devil's Island, later renamed Sleeping Village. A bit of finger the recording was broadcast on november 29th 1969. no copies of the recording are publicly available or have been proven to still exist but in 1971 after sabbath saw tremendous success Peel said black sabbath will sell because it sounds like something else you get a process where each band that is successful is a watered down version of something else In another statement referring to bands like Sabbath, Deep Purple, and Emerson Lake and Palmer, Peel said, Those bands have lost the spark somewhere down the line and are basically going through a routine. In response, Iomi said, That's one we really can't understand. We got on really well with John to begin with, but something seems to have upset him. We were really pleased about getting on TV. Oh, God, please help me. According to Tony, the band had no say in choosing their first single. The single was just one track taken from the album by the recording company because they thought it would sell and was representative of something we did. We don't specifically record singles and the decision to release them rests with the record company. But now we have got hassles with people saying that we sold out for getting into the top 10. It's something of an achievement and it's okay, but there won't be a follow-up single. The backlash from Fairweather fans for selling out was one thing. Far more concerning was public perception that the members of Black Sabbath were actually Satanists and practitioners of black magic. This PR nightmare had been brewing ever since the band changed their name from Earth to Black Sabbath. And even though the song Black Sabbath was written as an anti-black magic Satan song, the band could not shake being tagged as dark and mystical cultists. In countless interviews, the band members explicitly stated that they did not practice black magic or worship the devil, yet they continued to receive negative press and attention from self-professed Satan worshipers asking them to perform at black masses. While the mystique brought them attention from those on the fringe, it also kept them from the kind of success enjoyed by bands like Led Zeppelin. Clear from interviews in early 1970, the band had grown irritated with questions about the occult as it was overshadowing their music. In March, 1970, Ozzy made those feelings clear by saying, you're going to ask about black magic. He said, anticipating the line of questioning, it's rubbish. Geezer wrote a song called Black Sabbath. And at the time we were called Earth, but we were constantly being confused with another group with a similar name. And so we changed it to Black Sabbath. Sabbath was about to embark on their first US tour, the holy grail for any up and coming European band at the time. But instead of excited anticipation, the band was more afraid that their unwanted satanic image they had gained in the UK would follow them over to the States uncomfortably aware of how badly that could hurt them in easy rider country. They had good reason for concern. The trial of Charles Manson and his followers after the brutal slaying of Sharon Tate and six others was in the news almost daily. Geezer said, "'We just hope we don't get all the black magic confusion over there. We are frightened by the thought of the extremists. We don't want anything to do with the Charles Manson thing. We will just be going over there as a British hard rock band." Tony added, we might change some of the words of the songs so we don't have any trouble. We were never into black magic. The lyrics were chosen to go with the heavy music. The kids are always trying to interpret lyrics and they often create things that aren't there. The music of Black Sabbath is simple, basic stuff. Everybody thinks we're a black magic group, but we just picked the name because we liked it. I agree some of the numbers on the LP are about supernatural things, but that's as far as it goes. But it wasn't just their name and misunderstood lyrics that pushed the critics to cry Satanist. Black Sabbath was often confused with another British band named Black Widow, a band who leaned hard into the satanic and black magic imagery and wanted the notoriety of being the band for devil worshippers. During one of the tours, Black Widow had secured the services of Maxine, wife of England's chief witch, Alex Sanders, to appear in their stage show as Lady Astaroth, a tormented girl from the 18th century who was driven insane and jumped to her death. Maxine would end up naked at the show's end and simulate sex with the band's lead vocalist. Ironically, their biggest song was called Come to the Sabbath, but there was another more direct connection between the two bands. Black Sabbath's new manager, Patrick Meehan, had previously managed Black Widow and produced their last album, Sacrificed. Ozzy said a lot of people have a grudge against us because of this black magic thing but it has gotten all out of proportion at one time we got so confused with Black Widow it was unbelievable we're two completely different bands and music and everything Black Sabbath's confusion with Black Widow got so bad that the band actually considered changing their name again but the Means had convinced Sabbath that Black Widow would be changing their image ironically when Black Widow did back down on the occult imagery their notoriety faded Being associated with the devil never went away for Black Sabbath or even Ozzy as a solo artist. But to be fair, Sabbath and Ozzy both use this imagery to their advantage as the years rolled on. And it's also fair to say that the British record label Vertigo and manager Jim Simpson knew the occult was seen as a powerful marketing strategy to tap into or create the next big thing in the youth market. Long hair no longer shot, bright and patterned clothes no longer shot, drug use no longer shot. So the occult, perhaps the last taboo along with sexuality was willingly deployed. Simpson later admitted that he did make up stories for shock value. Vertigo didn't help things by releasing their first album on Friday the 13th or having an inverted cross on the inside of the album. Although the second album saw a shift from the perceived satanic preoccupations of the debut release, Paranoid was still an album shot through with dark themes. In the process of backpedaling away from the supernatural, the band refused to celebrate the witch's Sabbath at Stonehenge. This rejection allegedly caused Alex Sanders, head witch in England, to cast a spell on Sabbath. This story, which would be denied and affirmed over the coming years, would become part of the Sabbath mythology in a way that illustrates the awkward push-pull that existed between the band and their co-opting of horror imagery. Uncertain what to expect in the US, the band decided to test the waters across the Atlantic with a small exploratory tour in the fall of 1970. Sabbath had looked at coming over earlier in the year, but the reasons why they didn't are cloudy. Some statements indicate it was because of the unrest with college students protesting the Vietnam War. Part of this theory came from the rumor that Black Sabbath had canceled the U.S. tour before it even started after the Fillmore East and West shut down for the summer of 1970 due to the possibilities of violence. In reality, neither Fillmore Club ever closed during this time. Another theory was that in early 1970, Sabbath was in talks with Patrick Meehan Jr. about hiring him as a manager. Still, since they hadn't officially signed with him yet, they needed first to ditch Simpson, and then they could resume pushing the band to the land of the Yanks. The final theory, as Butler mentioned earlier, was at the same time in July as Sabbath was planning to play San Francisco, the Charles Manson trial began. And worried about Sabbath's supposed controversial lyrics and how audiences might respond, the record company Warner Brothers may have squashed the whole outing. Now with the Mian family, junior and senior, firmly in place as their managers, and paranoid tearing up the charts in the UK, it was time to go spread the sound of Sabbath. Patrick Meehan Sr. stayed in the office and mainly served as an overseer while Patrick Meehan Jr.'s role was more hands-on. The band touched down at JFK Airport on Wednesday, October 28, 1970. It was the first time that any of them had set foot on American soil and they didn't care that it was a low budget tour since they were playing some of the most prestigious small gigs on the east and west coast. According to IOMI, one of the stupidest things they did was haul their entire PA system instead of renting one in the U.S. Not realizing the U.S. had a different electrical system, Sabbath promptly blew out the power in the first place they played. With a ticket price of $1.50 to $2.50, the band played their first gig at Glass Barrel State College on Friday, October 30th. This contradicts Ozzy and Tony's autobiography where they state that the first gig was at Ugano's in New York, but the proof of this newspaper ad shows they did not play Ugano's until 3 days after the Glass Barrel gig. Their tour promoter, Rick Green, confirmed that Glass Barrel was in fact their first gig in the US. He said, "The group didn't arrive at the college in until 11.30 p.m. for an 8 p.m. concert and didn't take the stage until 1 a.m. A minute into the first song, they blew out the power to their enormous sound system, but about 10 minutes later, it was all back to normal. They started playing again, but this time they blew out not only the power in the gym, but the campus and most of the power in the neighborhood. You can also see the promotional flyer Green's Little Sister created for the show. This flyer would later be sold at Christie's auction in 2007. The last bit of proof is on Ozzy's own website showing Glassboro as the first Sabbath concert on US soil sabbath would play in 10 cities with over 18 shows for the next five weeks according to one music critic they blew headliner rod stewart and the faces off the Fillmore East stage according to tony when we went on the crowd went absolutely mental then rod stewart came on and the crowd began throwing things at him it was just incredible and from then on we became like the underground band in america Originally, they were supposed to open for Alice Cooper at the infamous Whiskey-a-Go-Go Club in West Hollywood. But when Cooper canceled, Sabbath went from opener to headliner for their five dates with two shows and nights. The Fillmore West, they shared a four-night stand with future Eagles guitarist Joe Walsh and his band, The James Gang. Iomi said, we did the Fillmore West in San Francisco with them, and Joe Walsh was smoking this bloody angel dust. Right before the gig, Geezer said, I'll just have a puff of that, Ozzy joined him. They thought they were just smoking a joint. But maybe the most significant name they played with was still relatively unknown at the time. That came on their last date before heading back to England when they played in Ashbury, New Jersey. Their opening act was the Steel Mill Band featuring a young Bruce Springsteen. Overall, the exploratory tour was a huge success. Just as America loved Sabbath, so Sabbath loved America. Ozzy said, It's every British band's dream to play the States. Coming from Birmingham, where the fucking sun never shines, it was magic to us. Before we move on, I'd like to call out one Black Sabbath rumor that is not entirely true. And even Tony Iommi got it wrong in his autobiography. Anton LaVey, the very real founder of the Church of Satan, never held a parade in honor of Black Sabbath. What did happen was there was a parade in San Francisco where the record company had a float promoting Black Sabbath. A man resembling Anton LaVey rode the float. But was it him? If you look at the video, it sure looks like LeVay, but there is no further evidence to back this up. LeVay doesn't mention it in his authorized biography and has been outspoken in his dislike of heavy rock music. All the video shows is a parade that included a single Black Sabbath float, paid for presumably by Warner Brothers. end of November 1970, the band returned to England and immediately started a mini tour of Europe from December 5th in Liverpool, England to December 19th in Paris at the Olympia Theater. They would have 12 days to rest before starting to record their heaviest album. 1970 was a whirlwind of a year for Black Sabbath. They started the year as virtual unknowns and by the end they had released two iconic albums hated by critics but loved by fans. From this point forward, Sabbath would be known rightly as the fathers of heavy metal even though they were all under 23 years old. Five decades later, it's challenging to take in just how frantic the pace was for the most successful bands in the late 60s and early 70s. Whereas acts these days record an album every three or four years, Sabbath was peaking at a time when turning out two albums every 12 months or so was the norm. As a result, they were already thinking about their next record when their first US tour ended. As the band struggled to work around their frantic touring schedule, Master of Reality would be the first Sabbath LP that was recorded piecemeal rather than in a concentrated burst of activity. On the very first day of 1971, Black Sabbath entered the studio to start work on what would be one of the most influential heavy records of all time. The band went to Island Studios and worked with, for the last time, the same duo who pushed the sliders on the first two records, producer Roger Bain and engineer Tom Allum. Tom would end up being the future Judas Priest producer. In addition to having a bit more time in the studio, they also went from having a paltry eight tracks to record on to a true, multi-16 track recorder, which meant they could do more overdubs and experiment with their sounds. Amongst the handful of tracks recorded at this stage were After Forever and Into the Void, although the latter was still known at this point by its working title, Spanish Sid. Both songs were played during the band's brief UK tour in January and during their subsequent American Jaunt, although Spanish Sid slash Into the Void was still being lyrically refined. Arguably the most bizarre recording to be taped during that session at Island was something the band called Weevil Woman 71. Presumably a mocking reference to Evil Woman, the song they'd been forced to cover as their debut single. At the same time the band was going into the studio, their album Paranoid came out in the United States. When Paranoid was released in the UK on September 18, 1970, their debut album was selling so well in the US, a half million copies in the first month, Warner Brothers decided to delay the release of their second album. Paranoid would reach number 12 on the US charts and quickly go platinum. Then, on January 27th, they flew over 42 hours with multiple stops to arrive in Adelaide, Australia to headline at the Maiponga Festival on January 31st. This would be the first time they played Down Under and the first time they would headline a multi-day music festival. Next, they had intended to play some dates in Japan, but were denied entry due to their spotty criminal records, Ozzy for Burglary and Tony and Bill for Marijuana. It was rumored they ran into the same problem again in April of seven when they attempted to revisit Japan. As it would turn out, Black Sabbath did not perform in Japan until November 1980, while Ronnie James Dio was in the band. With Japan out of the picture, they had a few extra days of R&R in Australia before another 40-hour trip to the Netherlands, where they played two dates on February 6th and 7th. At the time, Sabbath was still the Four Musketeers, ordinary lads from Aston who were all for one and one for all, and the band was the Number one priority. Despite their jet lag and without stopping to catch their breath, they flew from Amsterdam to England and traveled straight to the studios in London to resume work on their next album. time in the studio would again be cut short it was time to fly back to the u.s and officially tour for the paranoid album unlike the u.s tour just two months ago this time they would headline most dates the exception being grand funk railroad and mountain gigs now they would be playing in front of a thousand to fifteen thousand black sabbath fans nightly sometimes playing two shows a night. On this North American trip, they would cross the border twice for the first time to play in Canada. Future mega bands like Fleetwood Mac and the Jay Giles Band opened. Only the year before, they were making 50 pounds for playing the Banklands Youth Club. And only six months before that, at the same club, they announced their name change from Earth to Black Sabbath. On the second night of the tour, February 18th, they played an uncommon stop for most rock bands, Union Catholic High School in Scotch Plains, New Jersey. The student body contacted the band's booking agent, asking if Sabbath would play at their school. Tired of the usual dull bake sales and dances, the students at Union Catholic endeavored upon a novel approach to fundraising. It first started with the Who concert at the school in 1967, followed by other notable bands such as Chicago, Blood, Sweat, and Tears, and Cream. Black Sabbath would be the last band to play there. First hand account said, as the concert started, Ozzy came out with his band from our left, then froze mid stage. Facing him, right up front, were rows of seated priests and nuns in the audience. I still remember the puzzled look on his face. He then shrugged his shoulders and began. Apparently, the nuns and priests had commandeered the first two rows. The Marcus brother, who was assigned to the student council, took one look at Ozzy wearing a big cross and chain around his neck and turned to a member of the student body and said, Finally, you booked a Christian band. No one had the heart to tell them the truth. The sold out concert with an estimated 2,200 in attendance would gross over $8,803.50. That's over $60,000 and $2022. Black Sabbath would go down as the biggest revenue generator in all of Union Catholic High School's concert history. Sabbath's generosity to help raise money for charity was not a one-off. On the same tour a few weeks later, they would play another benefit show in Paramus, New Jersey. The St. Matthew's Episcopal Church Coffee House sponsored Sabbath on March 9th. Profits for the two shows went to work projects and inner-city missions. And local bands got to audition to open for the Brits. This is just one of the reasons Sabbath is considered a band for the people. The U.S. tour lasted from February 17th until April 4th, 1971. And when they returned to England around April 6th, the boys headed back into the studio for a quick couple of days before heading out on April 14th for a 10-day Scandinavian tour. Then on April 26th, they ended the Paranoid tour triumphantly at the Royal Albert Hall where just four months earlier, the hall had refused to let them play in fear of fan violence. At this show, they were awarded their gold records for Paranoid. Around this time, 21-year-old Ozzy found out that his then-girlfriend was pregnant with their first child. Ozzy had met Thelma Riley, also known as Thelma Mayfair, at the Rum Runner Bar in Birmingham. That's where Thelma worked part-time as a waitress when she wasn't teaching. After living together for a few months, Ozzie decided the proper thing to do was marry Thelma before the baby arrived. So in July, 1971, Ozzie and Thelma got married quietly at the registry office. Some said that they were married on April 1st but that could not have happened since Sabbath played a gig in Rochester, New York on that day. Months later, Ozzy would adopt Thelma's five-year-old son, Elliot Kingsley, from a previous marriage. Among Thelma's various talents, she was a gifted seamstress and designed all of the stage outfits Ozzy wore on tour throughout the 70s. The following year, on January twentieth, 1972, they would welcome Jessica Starshine Osborne to the family. In 1975, Ozzy's second child with Thelma, Lewis, was born. Now I'm... Ozzy would later admit to being a horrible father and husband to his first family. Adultery, spousal abuse, animal cruelty, and child neglect. Ozzy said years later, "'Thelma really suffered with me, and I really regret that. If there's one thing I wish for in my life, it's that I could take it all back. But of course, you can never take violence back of any kind, and I'll take this to the grave with me.'" Ozzy and Thelma divorced in 1982, and in the same year, he married his manager, Sharon Arden, with whom he'd been having an affair. There are various accounts of when Black Sabbath finished recording Master of Reality, but most reports point to the last week of May. As the band prepared for the studio, Ozzy warned the press that the new record was going to rock, telling one reporter that the third album was going to be the heaviest we've done. It's going to be heavier than before because that's what people want. I don't know whether Led Zeppelin made a big mistake or not with their third album, but personally, I think a lot of people were disillusioned. If we ever decide to go acoustic with the band, We would do it gradually, but at the moment, people want heavy music, the heavier the better. Tony Omi said that musically, Master of Reality was a continuation of Paranoid. I think all would agree that with the exception of how they tune their instruments, his statement is accurate. There are three songs on Master of Reality where they all turn their instruments down three semitones. These are Children of the Grave, Lord of this World, and Into the Void. Without getting too deep into musical jargon, this means they tuned their bass and guitars lower than most, if not all, musicians at the time. This created a uniquely rich, dark baritone that no one else had. In another interview, Tony stated it was all part of an experiment, tuning down together for a bigger, heavier sound. Back then, all the other bands had rhythm guitarists or keyboards, but we made do with guitar, bass guitar, and drums, so we tried to make them sound as fat as possible. Tuning down just seemed to give it more depth. I think I was the first one to do that. As far as we can tell, Tony is right. Not only was he the first one in popular music to tune down, but he also started a way of playing heavy music that continues to this very day. This tuning down approach helped create many music subgenres, including the grunge sound of the 90s, gent, which is a subgenre of heavy metal characterized by low guitar tunings, stoner rock doom metal, and many more. So not only was Master of Reality a classic hard rock album, it was an album that influenced thousands of bands. The album title, Master of Reality, came from Geezer Butler, who said, when you do an album, you've got the master tapes. So it was the master of the album and all the lyrics were about reality. So at the time, it made sense for the band to write a song about the reality of their love for the devil's lettuce, marijuana. This is grass. You you mean marijuana? Yeah. All right now! (laughs) Sweet Leaf begins with a cough that moves from the left to the right channel as it becomes more distorted and ends in a loop. The cough comes from Tony, having just taken a toke on a joint given to him by Ozzy. When handed the joint, Tony was working on a separate acoustic track, but its inclusion for the beginning of Sweet Leaf makes sense, as the lyrics are essentially a love letter to cannabis. The cough sets up not only the lyrical theme of the song, but also the tempo. This love song for Bud was almost a love song for someone else. An earlier version of the lyrics was not drug-related at all, and included the lines such as, song tone remained, but instead of the subject being a person, it became about the jazz cabbage after Geezer returned from Ireland. Geezer said, I just come back from Dublin and they had these cigarettes called Sweet Afton, which you could only get in Ireland. And we were going, what can we write about? I took out this cigarette packet and as you open it, it's got on the lid, the sweetest leaf you can buy. And I was like, ah, sweet leaf. We hate to contradict Geezer's memory, but our research shows that packages of Sweet Aftons actually said the best that money can buy, not the sweetest leaf you can buy. And there was no mention of Sweet Leaf on the packaging. But but there was another brand of cigarettes, Ogden, that was manufactured out of Liverpool and had the exact tagline of Sweetleaf. Perhaps Geezer's mind conflated the two. If you think we got it wrong, let us know in the comments below. Some have insinuated that Sweetleaf guitar riff was taken from Frank Zappa and the mothers of inventions, Hungry Freaks Daddy. a big fan of Zappa, I think it's a mere coincidence of notes. What isn't a coincidence of notes is the use of the riff in the Beastie Boys song, Rhymin' and Stealin'. In that song, the main guitar riff is paired with a loop of a drum sample from Led Zeppelin's When the Levee Breaks. The biggest song to ever give a tip of the hat to Sweet Leaf was the ending music passage of the Red Hot Chili Peppers' hit song, Give It Away. Chili Pepper's guitarist, John Frusante, is a known Sabbath fan and intentionally wanted to emulate the sounds of Master of Reality. He said, the template for Stadium Arcadium was to have an album like Black Sabbath's Master of Reality where the guitars are in stereo, hard left, hard right, and it's just the simple power chord and sounds as thick as you'd ever want it to sound. If you have early copies of the North American version of the first four albums, you have probably noticed extra song titles, but no actual additional songs. Those are ghost titles. Warner Brothers bands who played longer songs needed to give the appearance of more songs due to their publishing agreement. So for Black Sabbath to feature a minimum of 10 song titles, those additional titles were added afterward to various sections of songs, which was common practice amongst prog rock bands of the era after Forever's Floating Instrumental intro was given one of those ghost titles, The Elegy. Where Sweet Leaf was light and topic, After Forever is like a fist hammering on the pulpit. An avowed Catholic who once considered becoming a priest, Geezer Butler wrote the words to this track partly to refute the band's satanic image. Yet as explicitly pro-Christian as the lyrics are, this fact eluded those who refused to believe it or look beyond the dark-sounding music. Ironically, despite the song's pious message, the band still managed to get into trouble, with complaints being directed at the line course out of context by its detractors. Geezer said, that song just says that once you get to the end, are you going to be prepared for what you find? Have you lived a good life? Geezer also once put it this way, we were getting accused of all sorts of things, the whole Satan thing and everything. And After Forever is just about all these people that were following us around, that were into the occult, and all the so-called Jesus freaks. So as a response to them, I wrote After Forever. It raises the question, when you're on your deathbed, who are you gonna call, God or the devil? Who are you? We're the band Sanctified. We play metal and punk, but with lyrics that inspire faith in Christ. Yeah, we prove that Christian music can be tough and hardcore. Yeah, you guys are real hardcore. You bet your gosh darn rear end we are. Stand down from heaven, spirit, and the glory. After Forever may be the first Christian metal song ever written. It would be covered years later by the all-Christian metal band Striper with all the original lyrics intact. More influentially, it would establish a through line in the heavy metal genre of songs centered on biblical themes that carried over the decades with countless bands but comes directly from Black Sabbath, as this was not a topic Deep Purple, Led Zeppelin, or even the Acid Rock bands were writing about. Unfortunately, even positive words can have a negative effect on someone mentally unstable. Apparently serial killer David Berkowitz, aka Son of Sam, would use Sabbath lyrics in his rambling writings. Ozzy said, You remember that guy from New York, Son of Sam, who was killing all the chicks? When they got into his apartment, he supposedly had the lyrics to After Forever written on his wall. I thought, fuck me are we going too far? The way people misinterpret lyrics would continue to be an issue for Ozzy for years to come. Embryo is a 28 second track for solo guitar that gives birth to children of the grave. This two-stream medieval jaunt is Tony letting you catch your breath before he and the rest of the band propel you on a galloping ride with the Horsemen of the Apocalypse. Tony said, I like to come up with some instrumental guitar tracks like Embryo. It's a little classical thing to give it a little space and create some light and shade. If you listen to an album or even a song from start to finish and it's all pounding away, you don't notice the heaviness of it because there is no light in between it. And that's why sometimes in the middle of songs as well, I put a light part in to make the riff sound heavy when it comes back in. Children of the Grave, with the working title of Live in the Graveyard, illustrates the continuing Sabbath knack of making a song title sound as if it was something from a horror film when in fact, the lyrics deals with a different topic entirely. Far from being about any kind of undead or similar theme, the track is another of Butler's anti-war messages coupled with his belief in non-violent revolution. The titular children are marching to take over the world in the name of peace and love, being doomed only to become children of the grave if they fail this noble undertaking. Ozzy calls it the most kickass song we'd ever recorded. With its galloping syncopated rhythm like the four horsemen of the apocalypse on their way to the end of the world party, it's the precursor to many metal tunes. Iron Maiden owes a homage especially. It's as if all the turmoil in the inner city of Birmingham was converted into strident musical notes. The benefit of a 16-track studio over an 8-track studio gave Children of the Grave a notable extra layer of percussion, with Bill Ward's overdubbed timbals providing an unsettling tribal-like beat over the main riff. Children of the Grave may also be a nod to one of Tony's and Geezer's favorite classical composers, Gustav Hulse. They're on record saying that Hulse, Mars, the bringer of war from the Planet Suite directly influenced their song, Black Sabbath, but melodically, you can also hear Mars, The Bringer of War on Children of the Grave. If you're getting a Star Wars vibe too, you're not wrong. John Williams, who did the score for Star Wars, used Hulse Mars as an inspiration. The song simply has the rolling power of an unstoppable juggernaut and has been a fixture in the band's set list and Ozzy's solo set as well ever since it first appeared. Indeed, as the years have progressed, the song gradually took over the ever-present encore of Paranoid as the set closer that die-hards wanted. The track ends with some eerie sounding, echoing music with a repeated whispered voice intoning which would loop endlessly in the runoff groove on the original vinyl. The closing sounds you hear are calliope, heard more fully on the instrumental version released on the deluxe edition. The outro section was credited on the initial US pressing as The Haunting, but the extra title was removed for future pressings. Although there is no factual evidence for it, I'd like to believe the in the Friday the 13th movies was in some ways influenced by the outro to Children of the Grave. Embryo is medieval, this interlude is somewhat more Renaissance. This one-and-a-half-minute iomi solo acoustic piece is far more than another embryo. Despite its brief duration, this is a supremely delicate and beautifully composed piece with a couple of brilliantly evocative chord progressions thrown almost casually into the middle. The short length of the track may be indicative of Iomis' lack of confidence including such a piece on a Black Sabbath album, and it wouldn't be until the following years that he He'd add longer and more developed works in the shape of Laguna Sunrise, Fluff, and the intro to Spiral Architect. It may also have been abbreviated by Roger Bain, who is notorious for cutting things like this. Orchid is a nice acoustic piece with some death picking from Iommi that serves as a light contrast before being blasted into hell by the cloven hoof lord of this world. many sabbath fans claim lord of this world to be the heaviest tune that sabbath has ever recorded surprisingly this most explicit reference to satan is the most thoroughly christian song on the album the message is simple god and the devil both exist and if you don't willfully choose to follow god you get the devil by default the reference to satan as lord of this world is straight out of the new testament The ultra heavy groove is surprisingly dynamic and rich. Geezer said, Lord of this world was about Satan because it wasn't God's world, it was Satan's world. The devil's more in control now and happier than ever before. People can't come together, there's no equality. The higher you climb, the more people you have to cut down. You feel you're better than other people, that they're inferior to you, and it's a sin to put yourself above other people, and yet that's what people do. Lyrically, this is another piece that follows the after forever model, being a Christian message couched in black imagery, a scathing rebuke against those who pursue materialistic, self absorbed lives, unaware that this is the path to Satan, as summed up in this couplet. In retrospect, it was an incredible tightrope act that the band managed to pull off. While most bands would have been ridiculed for their Christian ideals, Black Sabbath's name, spooky imagery, and uber heavy music carried them forward. In effect, they managed to use the cool trappings of the dark side common to occult bands like Black Widow and Coven while escaping their gimmicky natures due to their greater musical and lyrical depth, all the while making anti-Satanic ideas fascinating. Sometime when the group was still called Earth, before re-christening themselves as Black Sabbath, Osborne and Butler had collaborated on the lyrics to a song called Changing Phases, which turned into Solitude. Solitude is a wonderful weird tune for Black Sabbath, and there were many who thought it can't be Ozzy singing and assumed it was Bill Ward. Solitude is a kind of brother of planet caravan with fewer psychedelic effects and more of a proggy folk rock vibe akin to King Crimson's Moonchild or the Moody Blues' Vision of Paradise. Ozzy's voice here is masterful and it shows just how well he could sing at the time. Ozzy's voice aside, this is really a Tony Iommi piece. In addition to a multi-track acoustic and electric guitar parts, he also contributes some excellent flute playing, a legacy of an interest gained during his brief stint with Jethro Tull. Iommi said, I tried all sorts of things in the course of doing albums, even though I couldn't play them. And after being with Jethro Tull for a short stint, I thought, I might try the flute. I did it only to a very amateurish extent, I must admit. If you listen to Tony's playing on a song for Jim, a tribute to their first manager, Jim Simpson, you will hear that, amateur or not, he was quite proficient on the flute. Welcome back, everybody. And the first of our delights for you tonight is the fantastic... Chat-roo-toe! Here's a brief overview for those who may not know the tale of Iommi being in Jethro Tull. Tull's guitarist, Mick Abrams, left the band on November 30th, 1968. Ian Anderson had seen Earth and Iommi when they opened for them a week earlier at the Mother's Club in Erdington and offered him the job. Iommi thought it was an excellent opportunity for himself, but did not want to leave his bandmates hanging. But after the rest of the band showed their support by telling Iommi to go for it, he did. But he quickly learned that Jethro Toll was more like a job than a band. He was there to support Ian Anderson's vision of Jethro Tull, not a collective group vision. That didn't sit right for Tony, so he put in his notice to leave. Ian was calm about it, but asked, we're in trouble now. Because we're doing this film, the Rolling Stones Rock and Roll Circus, and we don't have a guitar player. Would you do that at least? Iomi agreed and played with them on December 11th and 12th. Iomi had also come up with the riff in the Toll song, Nothing Is Easy, from their sophomore album, Stand Up. has consistently spoken of the light and shade dynamics of Black Sabbath to provide different timbers for the listener. Master of Reality's Solitude provides this contrast as much as Planet Caravan did for Paranoid. With its acoustic guitar, flute, and light arrangements, Solitude is both a gorgeous ode to proggy psychedelia and a palate cleanser for the heavy, ambitious cruncher that is into the void, much like Planet Caravan was for Iron Man. (laughs) The final tune, Into the Void, is a massive dinosaur stomper that, in my opinion, rivals Warpigs in terms of its changes and structure. The gruesomely heavy rift, dripping with sludge, that opens the song was another ghost title named Death Mask. Originally named Spanish Sid, this song is a sequel to Children of the Grave, whereas the closing of that song indicated, Utopia didn't come about. The earth is consumed by destructive power of sin and the fires of judgment, and the only place to go is away. The sons of freedom represent a remnant of humanity who make their way beyond the sun to a new world. This is also an apt metaphor for the last judgment as depicted in the book of Revelation, where the damned are condemned to the lake of fire, and the righteous are transported to a new heaven and a new earth in which they find everlasting life, peace, and happiness. An absolutely monstrous and challenging track to make, IOMI has said that both Ward and Osborne had trouble nailing this one down. It was time, effort, and frustration well spent. Bill Ward said, That was Black Sabbath at its absolute height, when it was absolutely coming alive. At that point, Geezer was writing really strongly, and the band at that point was unbelievably tight. We were really becoming confident due to all the touring we'd done. Soundgarden recorded this for their 1992 re release of their Bad Motor Finger album. Their version substituted lyrics taken from a speech given by Chief Self, a Native American leader in what is now Washington State. who lived 1786 to 1866, was also known as Chief Seattle, for which the city where Soundgarden was formed is named. Soundgarden was nominated for a Best Metal Performance Grammy for the song. Before we talk about the album cover we all know, did you know another image was first in line for Sabbath's next album? In December 1970, Black Sabbath bought a black and white drawing from a German artist Peter Reuter. The plan was for him to come to London in January of 1971 and create a color version for Sabbath's next album. Why it didn't become the cover for Master of Reality is a mystery. Though given that the band and label were trying to move away from overtly spooky imagery, this may have been the reason why. Featuring a pitch black cover with the band name eerily painted in funeral purple, the title of the record was embossed with bubbly lettering for the UK and North American release so that you could feel it with your fingers. Masters of Reality looked as ominous as it sounded. Later editions lacked the embossed printing and instead rendered the album title in gray. In his autobiography, Iomi described the cover as slightly spinal tapish, only well before spinal tap. Is this, what do you is it, think? Is this the test pressing? No, this is it. Yes, this that's it right. Smell the glove by that's, Spinal Tap. When that's you smell the, spell, the glove. It's... That's the, that's the jacket cover. How much more black could this be? And the answer is none. None is more black. I think th- like, you're like rationalising this whole thing like into something that you you did on on purpose. Boy. You no, know, no, I think we're tap. stuck with a very no, s- a very no, no, stupid not, and a very and a very dismal looking album. This is depressing. Boy. Black and purple were chosen as the theme to represent morning colors. Many variants occurred around the world with the majority intending to make the band's name more readable beyond the straight embossing. Post the initial pressings, there have been several variants worldwide of the color scheme with red, orange, and all the purple lettering occasionally being used, but always with the same basic design. According to Discogs.com, over 200 variants exist of the Master of Reality album cover the original uk issues of the album had the sleeve constructed as a thin box opening with a flat at the top like an envelope a large six panel fold-out poster was housed inside featuring a sinister shot of the band standing under a tree the photo was taken by keith mcmillan aka keith who was responsible for the cover artwork of black sabbath and paranoid the location was black park a country park in Wexham, England, the Bloomsbury group who designed the cover and Macmillan would team up again for Sabbath's next album, volume four. This was also the first Black Sabbath record on which the lyrics were reproduced on the back of the sleeve, which should have clarified what the band was about once and for all. Early US pressings bore the hallmark of injudicious planning when the title appeared in the plural as masters of reality on the vinyl label. Master of Reality was the first Black Sabbath album, other than cover songs, that didn't include full band credits for each song. Initially, Orchid, Embryo, and oddly enough, After Forever were mistakenly credited only to Iommi. This was changed when the Black Box was released, and the tunes, even Orchid and Embryo, were credited to the entire band. Black Sabbath has just released their third album. It's called Master of Reality. I love them. Why? I don't know. Like they're a good group. Couldn't explain it. You know, they're outrageous. I think Black Sabbath is fantastic. (laughs) They play what they feel and not like put on. But I think Black Sabbath really knows what they're doing. Music that drives. Master of Reality by Black Sabbath on Warner Brothers. The album would be released in the UK in July and in the US in August of 1971. One of the unique promotions that they had for the album was lifted from the blockbuster at the time, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Sabbath randomly inserted 500 golden tickets into copies of Master of Reality. The ticket stated, in 10 words or less, explain why you love Black Sabbath's music. The winner would get to hang out with Sabbath for the day. The winner ended up being writer metal Mike Saunders. And the 10 words or less that won it for him was simply, Black Sabbath have discovered the secret of sound. In the description, I will link his article about his experience named, A Dorito and 7-Up Picnic with Black Sabbath. Master of Reality was a commercial hit, a top five album in the UK, and a top 10 success in America. It's the distinct point where Sabbath proved they were here to stay and far from a current fad of 1970. They were able to capitalize on the brilliant music they had created the year before and enhanced to the stage further, all the while selling a ton of records and concert tickets and not to mention kickstarting new genres and inspiring musicians who were at the time either toddlers or not even born yet. 1971 was a great year for Black Sabbath and marked the turning point for them as they became a massive act stateside and worldwide. Yet critics still didn't get it. Sabbath were still written about as uncouth hoodlums making simple music for grubby people. Even though the album shipped Gold, went double platinum in the US, and sold nearly 5 million copies worldwide, there were still a few critics that hated Black Sabbath for purportedly killing the hippie dream. Bill Ward said, When we did Master, I thought, my god, surely this has got to get some credibility, because I love Master of Reality. It's one of the best albums I've ever heard. If we look at it through the lens of time, it's an iconic piece of music. Billy Corgan, leader of the Smashing Pumpkins, considers Master of Reality the album that spawned grunge. Rolling Stone Magazine ranked the album in their list of the top 500 albums of all time. Bill Ward said, When we completed that album, we were, as far as I'm concerned, truly veterans. I always looked at the first three albums as part of the same time period for us. But for me, it was master of reality that defined how good we'd become. The band had sort of reached a pinnacle with it. While I like all those records, this is the one where I believe we'd found ourselves. This is really the first proper studio album. It also marked the point at which we began to develop into something else. Master of Reality was the beginning and an ending. Money, tours, unadulterated, adulation, and unqualified success had come their way. It is a marvel that Black Sabbath did survive, albeit somewhat for the worst. The band would go on to do their usual routine of tour, record, repeat. The Master of Reality tour is where they'd find their love for cocaine, feel the wrong side of success, and start to lose their innocence.